So we have before us one of those passages that anyone who spent any amount of time in a Christian church has heard. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Every so often as we uh, work our way through the consecutive chapters and verses of the Bible, we come across one of these kinds of passages. And so it is our task this morning to look at that statement in its context and to understand what it means. I want to review briefly the main point of last week's message, which is that there is a place where God's people will end up with him eternally. And that Jesus prepares the way to that place. Revelation chapter 21 paints the most beautiful picture of the end of all things. John is recording the vision that he had while in exile on Patmos. And in Revelation chapter 21, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. This is the great hope of the Christian, that as Jesus told us in John chapter 14 that he has gone to prepare a place for us. And we saw last week that that doesn't mean that Jesus went to change the sheets and put on a new pillowcase and sweep the floors and so on and so forth. But Jesus came to make it possible that God could dwell with man. Jesus went to the cross and through the cross, uh, coming out of the empty tomb three days later, ascending to the Father's right hand where he forever lives to make intercession for his own, Jesus went to make it possible that our thrice holy God, as we sang earlier in the service, holy, 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 could dwell with sinners. Jesus did that by means of living a perfect life in the place of all of us who have lived imperfectly, who have broken God's law, so that he could take his righteousness that he earned and say, here, take it, it's a gift. Clothe, clothe yourself in that instead of your dirty garments. Jesus prepared a place for us by taking upon himself at the cross of Calvary the punishment that we deserve for our sin, so that Jesus could take the record that he suffered for sin and give it to us, that legal record as it were, and say, look, if any uh, condemnation is sent your way, show this. You're free from condemnation. There is no penalty any longer hanging over your head. Show them this, that I died for sin. 
Jesus, by his perfect life, by his substitutionary death, by his present day intercession for us, has prepared a place for us with God forever. It's not by housekeeping duties, but it's by priestly work that Jesus has prepared a place for us. And so the end of all things is, as we read from Revelation 21, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. It's because of Jesus that a thrice holy God can dwell with sinners like us. Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. The difference between whether you end up in that place or not is Jesus. I was in Spitestown a number of months ago for an appointment and I got there a little bit early. We were meeting at the Esplanade and there was a uh, older, um, a couple of older folks there. I don't know if they were a couple, it was a man and a woman, I'm not sure. They were, I think, um, uh, homeless uh, or at least uh, lower income folks smelling like alcohol and um, I think spending the day drinking uh, up there at the Esplanade. And I started chatting with them and they asked me what I was there for. I said I was meeting with someone and I told them I was a pastor. And the woman lit up when I told her and she said, oh, please pray for me. So I, not wanting to um, sort of condone the mindset that my prayers have any special power. After all, what does, what does uh, James say? The prayers of a, a, a righteous man avail much, right? It doesn't say the prayers of the clergy, right? It doesn't say the prayers of like um, some kind of intercessor or mediator avail much. In fact, what does the Bible say? There is how many mediators between God and man? One, the man Christ Jesus. So I pray for people and I'm happy to pray for people, but I don't really want to encourage the mindset that my prayers are special in some way. So I said, well, let me, let me talk to her first. So I, I asked her, what would you like me to pray for? And she told me that she was, had a lot of physical pain and that she was really hurting. And so I turned her to this passage in Revelation chapter 21. And I read this section. And especially when we got to verse 4, you could tell that it really hit her. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And I said, I said would, you, would you like to experience that? She said, of course. I would, I would like to experience that. That, that is the end of all things for God's people. But I said, not everybody is going to experience that in the end. So let me turn you to the end of Revelation chapter 20. Listen as I read from verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. 
Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So you see, between the end of Revelation 20 and the beginning of Revelation 21, we see the end of all people. It's either the lake of fire or it's dwelling with God eternally. And I, I pressed that point on her. And I said, I said, do you think that you are going to be in the lake of fire or that you're going to dwell with God forever? And she said, well, I hope that I will dwell with God forever. And I told her, I hope that too. I said, what, on what basis do you think that you will dwell with God forever? And she said, well, I try, I try not to curse. She said, I only, I only ever cursed a few times. I really try not to curse. And so I explained to her, I explained to her what the Bible says, that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags. Not all, not all of our sins, all of our righteousness. It doesn't mean that when God digs up the dirt on you, all of that dirt is as filthy rags. It means that when you put the very best things that you can muster up on your spiritual CV, your spiritual resume, and you submit that to God, that is filthy rags. So that's a problem, not, not just for this woman who I was talking to, but this is a problem for me. It's a problem for you. All of our righteousness is filthy rags. So I explain this to her, and I explain that the way that the Bible teaches us that we end up with God forever is not by trusting in our own righteousness, but by trusting in Jesus. And I explain that He is righteous. In fact, he is compared to a spotless Lamb of God. What happened in the olden days, in the Old Covenant? They would place their hands on the head of the Lamb, symbolizing a transfer of sin from them onto the Lamb. And the Lamb couldn't be the worst Lamb in the flock. You know, with a, a, walks with a limp, you know, a one eye missing. and He's a pretty weakly little guy anyway. Let's just offer him up. It had to be a spotless Lamb without blemish or defect. And so, the imagery here is, here's one that's healthy, and here's one that's sick. And I'm going to put my sickness, I'm going to put my guilt upon this one that's healthy. And then that healthy one is going to go die, so that I don't have to. That was the imagery. Was it effective to take away sin? No. Hebrews tells us, that the blood of, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. You might say, oh, well, he didn't say sheep. He didn't say monkeys. He didn't say turtles. It, that's not really the point. The point is that animal sacrifices are not effective. They're not efficacious substitutes. God had instructed them to do all that, to teach us, to instruct us what is required, that a healthy, whole one needs to die in the place of one who is not healthy and whole to atone for our sins. If that one wasn't healthy and whole, he wouldn't be dying for my sins, he'd be dying for his own. But if he has no sins to die for, he could offer himself up for another. And when Jesus shows up on the scene, what does the Baptist say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so I explained to this dear woman 
it's all about Jesus. It's about shifting our confidence away from ourselves and our own righteousness or our own perceived righteousness that we really have none to speak of. And it's about shifting our confidence on to Jesus and trusting in Him, Him alone, for our salvation. And that's what leads to dwelling with God forever, as Revelation 21 talks about. She was listening earnestly, and I said, so, so what, would, what would you say, having had that conversation, what would you say now is the basis of your hope that you will be with God in eternity forever? And she said, well, I try not to curse. So we went, we went over it again. <laughs> but this time, this time when we went over it again, as we got part of the way through, I could see her eyes starting to well up with tears. And as we, as we finally got back around to it again, I said, so what, I said, so what would you say? And she was, she was crying at this time. And she said, I understand now. It's Jesus. It's all Jesus. And I said, yes, that's exactly right. It doesn't matter how bad we've been. It doesn't matter how relatively good we've been. It doesn't matter whether we're rich, whether we're poor, whether we're black, whether we're white. It doesn't matter. None of those things matters. It's all Jesus. Jesus is the way. This is the point of our sermon this morning. Jesus is the way. Now, I want to note here, not Jesus' way is the way. Jesus is the way. There are, there is such a thing as the way of Jesus, or following Jesus. There is such a thing as a lifestyle which is Jesus' way to live. There are good things which are part of that way. Things like personal devotions, as we call them. Though that phrase is not in the Bible, that's pretty well known to anyone who spent time in Christian circles. What do we mean when we say personal devotions? Reading our Bible, praying every morning, right? Our quiet time. This is good. This is healthy. This is part of living in the way of Jesus, following Jesus. This is what it means, part of what it means to be a Christ follower. Things like joining a church, which believes in the Bible, preaches the Bible, where the gospel is front and center, where the priorities are reasonably healthy, where the processes of how things are done in the church are reasonably healthy. You never find a perfect life. As Spurgeon said, if you do, don't join it or we will be ruined at once. <laughs> Implying that the, if you, a sinner, go find a perfect church, don't join it, or all of a sudden it's polluted, right? And the same would go for me. If I find a perfect church and I join it, all of a sudden it's going to be imperfect because I'm imperfect, right? But find a healthy one and join it. And live out your life in the context of a healthy church. Morality. There simply are moral standards. Just because we preach grace, by grace are ye saved through faith and not by works, it doesn't follow then that we just go live like the devil and just pull out the get out of jail free card, which is our faith in Christ, when we're challenged on that on judgment day. Um, Though we are not saved by our works, God expects us to live according to the way He has taught us. 
there is a way to live which is following Jesus. But I want you to notice here that Jesus did not say, my way is the way. Jesus said, I am the way. And the way to what? The way to where? To dwelling with God forever in the place that Jesus has prepared for us. Jesus is the way there. Personal devotions are not the way there. Church membership is not the way there. Morality is not the way there. Do you realize that if we were to say church is the way there, we would be giving the same answer as my friend in Spikestown. If we said, what, what will end you up in Revelation 21 instead of Revelation 20? What will, what will land you with God forever eternally versus being in the lake of fire? We said church membership. Or we said personal devotions. Or we said morality, loving God and neighbor, or obeying the Ten Commandments. We would be giving the same wrong answer. Jesus did not say, my way is the way. He said, I am the way. And we need to make that fine and subtle distinction. Otherwise, we are simply substituting one kind of works righteousness for another. You see, we might not say, I'm a good person, I deserve to go to heaven because I am so moral. We might not be legalists in that sense. But if we were to answer the question, what will land you in the place that Jesus has prepared for you? And you say, well, I try to follow Jesus pretty faithfully. You're still counting on your works. You're still counting on your own Performance. You're still counting on your own behavior. What we need to hear loud and clear is Jesus saying, I am the way. Not my way is the way. I am the way. Don't look to not cursing to get there. Don't look to church membership to get there. Don't look to your personal devotions to get there. Don't look to morality to get there. Look to Jesus to get there. That's how we end up there, through Jesus, and through Jesus alone. This passage before us today is very, very exclusive. And because it's very, very exclusive, it's very, very offensive in today's day and age. You see, Christianity is extremely extremely inclusive. Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Well, I mean, surely there's some limits, right? Like what if, what if somebody terrible like Hitler had looked to Christ at the end? Well, you know what? Jesus would not have cast him out. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. This is the kind of extravagant inclusiveness, lavish inclusiveness, that is absolutely unparalleled anywhere else. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him 
should not perish, but have everlasting life. Christianity is extremely inclusive. But you know what's coming next? Christianity is extremely exclusive. And this, this is a sticking point in today's day and age for a lot of people. Because alongside the whosoever in John 3.16 is the no one in John 14.6. Whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Well, what does John 14 and verse 6 say? No one comes to the Father except through me. Hmm. All religions are true in their own way. You hear people say. You know? Or to each his own. But all religions are true in their own way doesn't work with Christianity. This is because there are mutually exclusive claims in the Bible. If Christianity is correct, no other religion can be correct. And if another religion is correct, then Christianity is not correct. That sword cuts both ways. But it can't simply be that Christianity and other religions are correct. That's just not a, that's just not a, a rational option that's open to us. Some say that all religions are fundamentally the same and yet superficially different. So the logic goes, the reasoning goes, well, there are moral standards in every religion. And so there are things like um, not recklessly endangering other people's lives or outright murdering them that we need to rein in to some extent, like our anger, our violence as a, as a species. Things like sexual fidelity that we need to we need to rein in um, our sexual appetites and that we shouldn't just let them run uh, absolutely free and unfettered and you know as we go on we see things like uh, a worship principle like an idea that we ought to worship that we're not here alone that there's a creator that we need to right and so the details vary but as the argument goes, at the root, all of these are fundamentally the same. Fundamentally the same, but superficially different. But I would turn that on its head and say the exact opposite. All religions are superficially the same, but fundamentally different. They're superficially the same for the reasons I just mentioned to you. That you could, you could have a fine, fine Muslim neighbor, or Buddhist neighbor, or atheist neighbor. You could have an extremely moral, upstanding, thoughtful, considerate, nice person or family living beside you. There, there are uh, Muslims who set a better example of morality for the rest of the world than some Christians. Let's be frank. The difference between them and us is not actually how moral we are. There are really fine people of other faiths. Real, real thoughtful, kind, all that kind of stuff. And so this is where 
you would say, well, they're, they're superficially the same then. Because you can actually see that Christianity produces moral people. Islam produces moral people. Atheism produces moral people. Right? At least sometimes you find examples in all of these things. And there's some kind of standard, there's some kind of principle. We're all kind of generally trying to do some of the same things. And so one might conclude, if he were making a superficial judgment, it doesn't really matter. What really matters is that you just follow some principles of morality, which are shared by all humans. But here's the thing. They are fundamentally different, or Christianity at least is fundamentally different from all other paths. Because in any other path, you clean yourself up first and then you get the reward. That's how it goes. Whether, whether it's Zen, Nirvana, whether it's paradise, whether it's you know, a, a certain number of virgins in the afterlife, whether it's whatever it is, what people are hoping for, right? The goal for, for the uh, uh, secularist, the atheist, somebody that doesn't believe in afterlife, uh, it might be more along the lines of something like self-actualization, or like having a sense of purpose, or whatever. But the point is, for all of those paths, here's how it works. You clean yourself up, you attain something, and then you get the reward, right? Because what do you got to do to reach nirvana? What do you got to do to get 70 virgins in the afterlife? What do you got to do to find a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning, a sense of fulfillment? All of them is do something. Do something. But here's how it, here's how it works with the gospel. The gospel is like, you're terrible. <laughs> you have no hope. All of your righteousness is as filthy rags. Again, not, not all of your sinfulness is as filthy rags. All of your righteousness is as filthy rags. You're a lost cause. There, there is no, there's nothing you can really actually do to attain heaven. There is, there is nothing you can do, do to atone for your sins. There's nothing that you can do to get rid of that guilty stain. So, abandon that. Abandon ship. Right? Abandon that course of things. For you, there is no hope by doing. All of your righteousness is as filthy rags. But, is there no hope then in Christianity? Quite the opposite. Quite the opposite. There's great hope in Christianity. But our hope is not that we might do better and achieve, our hope is that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, I would add at this juncture, to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, that, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so we sing sometimes, the vilest offender who truly believes. When? That moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. You see, once we believe, yes, God puts us on the way of Jesus. But before we believe, the way of Jesus is not the way to 
being with God eternally forever. It's not about moral reformation of yourself. It's not about embracing a new set of behaviors. It is about embracing a person, Jesus, and trusting Him. And when you trust Him, before you even embrace the way of Jesus, Jesus' way, you embrace Jesus Himself and that moment from Jesus, a part of you receive. And that moment that you trust in Jesus, you know that your name is written in the book of life. And you know that when all things are wrapped up and brought to their end, you know that your dwelling place will be with God. And God will wipe away every tear from your eyes. Before you've even done anything Christian, before you've joined yourself to a church, before you've even had a morning as a Christian on which you may possibly do devotions, that moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. And from that moment on, you can be sure that when the new Jerusalem descends out of heaven and God makes all things new, that you're going to be there. Why? Because the way is Jesus. And if this is true, then all other religions have to be false. Because by definition, religion which points you to Jesus and to Jesus alone to save you from your sin is Christianity. And religion that doesn't isn't. So if, if Jesus is the way, and if our righteousness is as filthy rags, and if there's no hope that sinners can just work their way up, if there's no hope that people can pull themselves up by their bootstraps, pick themselves up by their shoelaces, as my translator in Malawi said. If there is no hope, by works, to earn, to achieve, to accomplish, then our only hope is Jesus. But if we may earn, if we may achieve, if we may accomplish, if by following this ideology or that philosophy or adopting these ten principles or those seven pillars or whatever, if by some other way we may achieve, by some other way we may earn, then Jesus is not the way, the truth, and the life. And it's not true that no one comes to the Father except through Him. So you see there is a mutual, there, Jesus makes a mutually exclusive claim, which cannot be true at the same time as another religion is true. So from time to time I have opportunity to speak with people of other religions, and sometimes even people from other religions try to go down that path with me and well you know I mean we're, we all have the same God we all worship you know I mean we have our differences but basically we're doing the same thing and I and I say I say to them something like this you know I I'm committed to treating with you with respect and with dignity with kindness as you as much as me are made in the image of God and I'm not a better person than you are that um, the scripture says that we are all by nature dead in our trespasses and sins and all of our righteousnesses as filthy rags. So I'm not at all trying to come off superior to you. 
but Jesus does not allow for both of our ways to be true. Jesus does not allow for both of our ways to be correct. It has to be the case that either you're right and I'm wrong, or I'm right and you're wrong, or both of us are wrong. It simply cannot be the case that both of us are right. You know, and I try to, have, I try to give this a brief gospel explanation. This is what Christianity teaches, and if that's, if that's false, then you might be right. But if that's true, then you have to be wrong. Christianity, you see, is extremely, extremely inclusive. Whosoever believeth, Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. It does not matter what you have done. It does not matter where you have been. It does not matter who you have been with. It does not matter what you have said. It does not matter what you have thought. Jesus will have you. If you look to Jesus in faith, shifting your confidence away from anything else, such that you could sing with a pure heart, free from hypocrisy, on Christ the solid rock I stand. Or as we're going to sing in a moment in response, in Christ alone my hope is found. If you can sing that from the bottom of your heart, then you, you may belong to Christ. You could be sure that you will dwell with God forever in eternity. And then you will not end up in the lake of fire. That is extremely, extremely inclusive. Race doesn't matter. Income doesn't matter. Past history doesn't matter. How you lived up to this point doesn't matter. Even on someone's deathbed, they could come to Christ. And I hear sometimes people go, well, well that's not fair. I mean, I lived my whole life for Christ. I denied myself the pleasures of sin. And this person enjoyed the pleasures of sin their whole life. And then they just get to squeak right into the kingdom. Well, first of all, I would say, if Christ is not sweeter to you than the pleasures of sin, which are admittedly pleasurable, even the scripture admits that. That phrase is in the Bible, Hebrews. The pleasures of sin. But if Christ is not sweeter to you than the pleasures of sin, you still have some growing in Christ to do. So first of all, but that's really a secondary point. Jesus compared the kingdom of heaven to a man who went out 10 o'clock in the morning, saw some guys standing around, liming on the block. You don't have any work to do today? Well, we were ready to work, but no one hired us. Okay, come, I got some work for you to do. So those guys went. He went out again at noon. Saw some more guys. You still don't have any work for the day? Well, no one hired us. Okay, come, I got some work for you to do. Three o'clock, same thing. Five o'clock, same thing. When the sun went down, he went out to settle accounts. He went out to those who started at 10 in the morning. Gave them a day's wages. And then went to the guys at noon. He gave them a day's wages. Went to the guys who started at three, gave them a day's wages. Went to the guys who started at five, gave them a day's wages. The guys at 
10 o'clock in the morning said, this isn't fair. This isn't fair. But Jesus said that this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. Grace is God's to dispense. As he sees fit, to whom he sees fit. And listen to just how exclusive this, or pardon me, how inclusive and lavish this grace is. The point isn't really about the 10 o'clock guys. The point is really how God deals with the 5 o'clock guys. The point is that God is prepared to hire guys at 5 o'clock and pay them a day's wages. That's what God is like. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. So you wasted away the day. And at some point, you come to your senses and you say, the way I am living is not the path to life. Like the prodigal in Luke 15, you come to your senses in the pigsty. And you say, let me go home, but you're wondering whether or not the Father will have you. Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. You see, one thing that should never keep us away from Jesus is the depth of our sin and the fear that he won't have us. Because it's exactly for the express purpose of saving people from their sin who cannot save themselves that he came. It's literally the mandate of the Savior to save. And so the one thing that should never, ever, ever keep us from faith in Christ is the thought, I'm too bad. I'm too far gone. I can't come back now. That must never keep us away. Christianity is extremely inclusive in that sense. You don't even have to clean yourself up before you come. Just come as you are, and Jesus will have you. But what Jesus says here is extremely exclusive, isn't it? I am the way. There is only one. We know what the means. No, I am a way. I am the way. I am the truth. No, I am a truth. No, I am true for you, but I might not be true for someone else. I am the way, the truth. I am the life. We read earlier, it was funny, I didn't have this in my notes, but it, um, I connected the dots as we were reading earlier when Tevin was reading from Mark's Gospel. Jesus told them that after three days he was going to be raised. It says they discussed among themselves what the resurrection from the dead might mean. Well, let me tell you what the resurrection from the dead means. It means there's a guy in a tomb whose heart's not beating, and he's brain dead. And all of a sudden, his lungs fire up. And his blood starts circulating. And all of a sudden, there's electrical impulses in his brain again. And he opens his eyes, and he's alive. That's what it means. It's not rocket science. Jesus came back from the dead. And Jesus will raise his people to live with him forever. There's only one way that you're ever going to come out of your grave. To live with God eternally. Only one way. Jesus. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. He'll have you. For sure. He will have you. 
But there is no other way. There is no other truth. There is no other life. Leon Morris says, we should not overlook the faith involved both in the utterance and in the acceptance of those words spoken as they were on the eve of the crucifixion. I am the way, said one who would shortly hang impotent on a cross. I am the truth when the lies of evil people were about to enjoy a spectacular triumph. I am the life when within a matter of hours his corpse would be placed in the tomb. See, th these words called for faith when they were originally spoken, and they still call for faith now. How difficult, as Morris notes, in, indeed it would have been for those who couldn't see, who couldn't understand the whole picture, to believe that Jesus was the way, the truth, and the life. And it should be easier for us now when we can read the closing chapters of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the rest of the New Testament, and see that the cross wasn't the end of the story. But we still, even today, have trouble believing, holding fast to this. Amidst religious pluralism, we wonder, is Jesus really the truth? That is the only truth? In an age of almost religious scientism, we wonder, is Jesus really the life? That even if there is life after death, is Jesus really the way? The Eastern gurus beckon us with their ideologies this way. The Roman Catholic Church and other sects which have split off from Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, beckon us with various trappings, perhaps beautiful buildings, stained glass windows, smells and bells, this way. The scientists beckon us with their microscope, microscopes and their test tubes. This way. Influencers beckon us on social media. This way. Through it all, Jesus continually beckons us. I am the way. These words still call for faith. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life.